Good morning, everybody. Um, it's really good to be together. I've loved hearing uh, all the things that were, were shared by people already this morning. Um, and as you'll, you'll see, Wallace in particular has kind of uh, given a little trailer for some of the things we're going to be, be thinking about uh, this morning. Um, let me just mention a couple of practical things, because I'll forget them at the end. One is just to say coffee this morning is going to be served out in the marquee. Uh, so you can go out there and you can either stay out there or you can bring your tea and coffee back in, but we'd love you to hang around. But it maybe takes a wee bit of the pressure off the space uh, to go and uh, get tea and coffee outside. Uh, the second thing is uh, we will each Sunday morning um, have a couple of people available just to my left, your right, um, to pray with you at the end of the service. Um, you don't have to ask them to pray. You can ask anybody around you uh, to pray for you. Uh, but there'll particularly be a couple of people here who are available. Uh, and if, you'd like, if God's speaking to you this morning, if there's anything going on in your life where you'd really appreciate someone just drawn alongside to pray, um, do grab that opportunity um, at the end. And maybe just a wee note to the rest of us to say, maybe if we try and leave that space for people who want to come and get prayer uh, and do our chatting kind of elsewhere um, and just be respectful of maybe those who, who need a little moment uh, to receive prayer. Uh, that would be super. Um, let's uh, pray together um, just as we open up God's word uh, this morning. Father, we sang a moment ago that you're a God who flowers each promise of your word. And so we want to um, stand in that this morning. We want to rest in that this morning that your word is powerful to bring new growth and new life within us and in our lives. And so, Father, I want to pray, would you help us uh, like thirsty plants uh, to take in your word this morning into our hearts? And we want to pray that by your spirit, uh, it would grow and bear fruit and flourish in our lives. Uh, Father, speak to us by your word and by your spirit. And as we pray for ourselves, we pray for our young people upstairs, the same thing, that you would speak to them this morning through your word in a way that would bear fruit in their lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, we're, we're beginning a new series this morning, a new term, a new season. I, al I always get a little excited whenever we're starting a new series. Last term we were taking on the gigantic book of Isaiah, um, and you were very uh, brave in coming with me and taking on that book. We thought it might be good this term uh, to deal with a little book, um, that, and we're, we're going to be reading the beautiful, delightful book uh, of Philippians. Um, and of course, as a way of introducing Philippians, I thought I would talk about Deuteronomy. Um, so... Um, but there's a, there's a brilliant little bit in Deuteronomy 6, uh, you can go and look at it later, where uh, just after the giving of the Ten Commandments has been described, um, God says to the people through Moses, um, the words that I've given you, I want you to carry them with you in your heart. And I want you to talk about them with your children. And I want you to talk about them in your house. And when you're on the road going on a journey and whenever you get up in the morning and whenever you go to bed at night, and I want you even to write them 
tie them round your hands and on your foreheads and write them on the doorposts of your houses and on the gates of your garden. Um, and it's a brilliant little vivid passage about something about taking God's word um, into our lives and mixing it into uh, all the ordinary places of our lives and making sure it doesn't stay separate uh, from the rest of life. Uh, and I guess as we begin um, our series in Philippians, that's what I would love to encourage you to do, um, is that we wouldn't just think about it for half an hour on a Sunday morning, but that we would all then take it and carry it in our hearts and talk about it with our kids and our young people and talk about it with your friends over coffee and listen to it in your headphones when you're walking around Mount Sandal Forest and write a verse out and stick it on your wall and all those things. Work out what that means for you to write it on your doorposts and even on your forehead and so you don't, you don't forget it. Um, so I want to encourage you maybe this week to be talking about how could we do that? How could we take Philippians and mix it into life? Uh, so it's coming into contact with all the ordinary places of our lives. So having said that as an intro, uh, let's read the beginning of Philippians. And I'm not going to read very much this morning. Uh, so let's read from Philippians chapter 1. And this is how it begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's actually all I'm going to read this morning. Um, it's very tempting maybe, um, and maybe sometimes in our Bible studies and when we're preaching, uh, we do this, we, do, we skip over these kind of initial words as kind of just introduction. Um, but actually I think, these introductions to the letters are, are full of little clues that kind of um, help us understand everything that comes after. They kind of introduce a lot of the themes that are going to come later on. Um, and if you and I believe that all scripture is God-breathed, then even these little words at the beginning are full of the breath of God, are full of the life of God. And so if we pay attention even to these words, they're going to do us good and bring us life. And so that's all we're going to do this morning. I want to I walk kind of phrase by phrase through the introduction and see what we might notice and see uh, that will lead us into the, group, into the book. And so we begin here uh, with Paul and with Timothy. And even immediately, uh, the fact that the book begins with people's names reminds us that this is not abstract truth. This is not abstract theology. Uh, this is a real letter written in real time by real people to real people who were facing all the stuff of ordinary life. And so it immediately reminds us that the gospel is only ever heard and believed and lived out in the middle of real people's lives with names and stories and all the rest. Um, Paul, of course, um, is one of the biggest personalities in the New Testament. Um, Paul started off as Saul um, hating Christians with a murderous hatred until he met the risen Jesus on the road and everything changed and Paul became the great missionary adventurer of the early church and he, he made these extraordinary journeys uh, that are in our Bible maps 
um, from the land of Israel up into Syria to the north and then over into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and then on into Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, and even eventually all the way to Rome, which was the, the center of the empire. And everywhere that Paul went, he preached the gospel. He preached the good news about Jesus, and he established church communities, and he appointed local leaders, and then he moved on. Uh, Paul never stayed in one place for too long, um, uh, but he moved on because there were other places he wanted to take the gospel. But Paul kept his connection with these new churches by writing letters. And he wrote letters to encourage and to teach and to warn and to rebuke and to inspire. And his letters are full of all those kinds of things. Um, the letters, in a way, allowed Paul to be present in those churches even when he was absent. That's what a letter can do, <laughs> kind of bridges the gulf. And you'll see that theme coming up in Philippians. Paul, is very, Paul wishes he could be with them, but he's absent. But he writes this letter so that he can kind of be present through his words, um, even though he's far away. Um, so that's Paul. What about Timothy? Um, Timothy was one of Paul's most trusted companions. He was with Paul when Paul first went to Philippi uh, and on many of his travels. Uh, often when Paul couldn't be in a place, he sent Timothy instead, or he left Timothy there uh, on his behalf. Um, uh, we're going to find out when we read later on in Philippians that Paul intends to send Timothy soon back to Philippi uh, to help them and encourage them. Um, and so the fact that Timothy's name is here, it doesn't necessarily mean that Timothy is a co-author of the letter. Uh, people debate this. He might be. It may be that Paul and Timothy sat down and uh, co-authored it, wrote it together. Uh, some people think Paul dictated it and Timothy was his scribe and wrote it down. Uh, we don't really know <laughs> uh, about things like that. Um, but it may simply reflect the fact that he's there with Paul as Paul is writing. And he's always been involved in his relationship with the Philippians. Um, and so... Paul puts Timothy's name with him. Timothy's here with me and we're in this with you. We're in this together. Uh, that may be what, what's expressed. Uh, but for me, it's another little reminder that Paul rarely worked alone. Paul was a man of extraordinary gifts, but he rarely worked alone. He, he loved to work in partnership and in teamwork with other people. Um, and I think it's a good reminder to all of us, uh, no matter how gifted you are, no matter... Uh, what kind of talents you have. I think the normal way for us to work as Christians in the church and in, in, in mission is to work together uh, with other people. And then I love this little phrase that's, uh, that follows Paul and Timothy. Who are Paul and Timothy? They're servants of Christ Jesus. Literally, uh, a, more, a more literal translation would be slaves of Jesus Christ, slaves of Jesus, the King, the Messiah. Um, it's an extraordinary way to describe, describe yourself. Um, Paul was one of the key leaders of the early church. He was an apostle, and yet he sees himself fundamentally as a servant, a servant of Jesus, and therefore also a servant of the church of Jesus. Um, and again, that theme is going to be important as we go in Philippians, because we're going to find out that even Jesus, the king, is the king who 
came down and became a servant. And so that word is really important um, in this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And then how does he address those he's writing to? Um, He writes to all God's holy people. Uh, The older translations say to all God's saints. Um, I wonder how that kind of lands with you. Maybe immediately we think these must be really impressive people that Paul is writing to. They must be super shiny, super spiritual, super impressive Christians. But actually, this is Paul's usual title for the Christians he writes to. Um, Paul always calls the Christians and the churches that he writes to God's holy people. He actually, Paul in his letters never uses the word Christian. He calls, he calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. That's his usual address. And of course, if you've read much in Paul's letters, you know that these churches were not perfect or shiny. Um, there's, Paul was really aware that in these churches there were all kinds of problems. And Paul was really aware that they are, like you and I, human and messy and flawed and imperfect. And yet Paul writes to them and says, I'm writing to all God's holy people. Um, Why does Paul call them that? I think um, we can only understand it when we set it with the phrase that comes next, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. In other words, when someone is in Jesus and has joined their life to Christ through faith, God calls them holy. It's something that, it's an identity that God gives as a gift. It's not something earned as a badge for those who've done really well. It's something given freely as a gift uh, through the grace of God. Um, It's something in in a sense that God speaks over someone and declares and says, this is who you are. And then God begins the process by his spirit, by his Holy Spirit, of changing that person from within so they start to become holy in character and life. But first, not at the end of that journey, but at the beginning, he calls them holy. It's an extraordinary thing. Um, And so I want to encourage you, I want to encourage us this morning um, not to reject this title, um, even if it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I want you to take a second and just have a wee sneaky look at the person to your right and the person to your left. Right? Have a wee sneaky look. Right? The people around you. Right? Don't, don't start talking to them. Um, that is what God's holy people look like. Right? That's what they look like. They look ordinary like you. They look not super shiny, super spiritual. But if they've joined their life to Christ, then God says, these are my holy people. And I'm going to do something in them and I'm going to do something through them that is going to amaze the angels, right? That's God's work. Um, So later when you get home, if you want, get a mirror, look in the mirror. That's what God's holy people look like. I should pass a mirror around at this point uh, so you can all see. Um, Don't reject this title. You and I are very aware every day that we're not perfect, that we are human and messy and sinful and flawed. But if you are in Jesus, if you joined your life to his by faith, then you're part of God's holy people. That is who we are. 
It is our God-given identity. God has declared it. And of course, in the Bible, whenever God speaks something, it then comes to pass. So God says, let there be light, and there is light. Jesus says, be still, and the wind and the waves are still. Jesus says, come out of the tomb, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And so God, when God says, you are holy, it's going to come to pass. The changing of us from within by his spirit, so that in the end, the outside of our lives and the inside of our lives will all match what God has called us um, in Jesus. It's pretty exciting. Um, but then I love this. Uh, Paul writes uh, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Um, the people he's writing to have a double address. Um, where do they live? They live in Christ Jesus. <laughs> they live in Philippi. That's their double address. And so if I ask you, where do you live your life? Um, where do you spend your days? You might say in Coleraine or in Port Rush or in Akadui or McCosquin or Limavati. But it's also true of you. You have a double address. Also, you live your life in Christ Jesus. Every ordinary moment of every ordinary day, you are in the presence of Jesus the King. And he is with you and he is within you and you are in him. That's your location. That's your identity. And that's your truest location. And I wonder how that might change the way you view your day tomorrow. If you get up tomorrow and don't just say it's another day in Coleraine, but say it's a day of living in Christ. That's where I'm going to be spending my, my day. Um, I wonder where you would look on a map to find Philippi. Let's do a little bit of um, since we're talking about Philippi, um, I wonder, do you know where you would look to find it? If you're looking for uh, looking on Google Maps, well, you would go to Greece. So this is on Google, Google Maps. And where that red pin is, so you go up to the northeast of Greece. Uh, and if you find a town called Kavala, which is on the coast, and you go about eight miles inland, um, you'll find Philippi. There, it's not a city today. Uh, you can go if you want and see the ruins of the ancient city at Philippi. Um, so they look like this. So that's what you'll find if you go there today. Um, Philippi was established around 360 BC. Uh, it got its name, Philippi. Uh, it was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great when the Greeks ruled the world. Um, so it was named after Philip. Uh, it was an important and wealthy city because there were gold mines nearby, and it was also located on a really important trade route um, through that part of the world. Um, and after the Greeks, it was later conquered by the Romans, and the Romans made it a Roman colony. And you can maybe see on the map, um, this red line um, was a, a road that was called the Ignatian Way, or the Via Ignatia, which was a really important trade route that connected Rome, which is off our map, over here, uh, all the way through the north of Greece, all the way to Byzantium, which was la later Istanbul, uh, or later Constantinople, and then later Istanbul. I think there's a song about that. Um, and then eventually all the way into Asia. So it was a really important trade route for traffic coming through from Rome to the rest of the empire. Um, and after the Romans took over Philipp Philippi, they dedicated it to Caesar Augustus, 
uh, who won an important battle there. And Philippi kind of became, people say, a little Rome modeled on the capital of the empire. It was like a little miniature version of Rome. Um, and if you lived in Philippi, then you were a Roman citizen. You were under the rule of Caesar. Um, and this is going to become really important as we read in Philippians, the fact that it's a Roman colony, the fact that they live under the rule of Caesar. I don't know if you know that in the first century, uh, by the time this letter was written, when Nero was the emperor, the emperor of Rome took certain titles upon himself, and among them, he took the title Lord, and he took the title Savior of the world, and he was celebrated as the one who brings peace. They talk about the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace that they brought through the empire at the end of a, a sword or a spear. Um, and that's really important. So if you're living in Philippi, then you're a Roman citizen. And that's going to be really significant as we go on in the letter. One of the, the urgent questions for the Philippian Christians is how can we live as a colony of heaven? in the, mid the middle of a colony of Rome. That's their challenge. How can we live as citizens of heaven in a place where everybody is bowing the knee to Caesar as Lord and Savior? Um, how do we do that? It's a really urgent question for them. And we're gonna think about what it means for us. Um, and so that's a little bit about Philippi. Um, all God's holy people in Christ Jesus and Philippi. And then I love uh, that it's almost, almost as an afterthought Paul says, together with the overseers and deacons. And I think this keeps leaders humble. Um, Paul could have written the letter to the leaders of the church, but he writes to the whole church, to all God's people. He wants the letter read to everybody. And the leaders are included together with everybody else. And it's a reminder, I think, that in the church, leaders, elders, deacons, whatever we call them, um, in the church, leaders are not above everyone else. They are part of the family. They are part of the community. And if they are set apart, then like Paul and Timothy, they're set apart to serve in the church. It's a very different way of thinking about leadership to the way they thought about it in the Roman Empire and so on. So God, the leaders are part of the family, are part of the community. And then Paul says these two words, grace and peace. Um, and maybe some of you have been listening to me for a few years know that I get very excited about these two words. Um, it's so easy to skip over these words like they're just filler at the beginning of the letter. Paul always begins his letters with these two words, grace and peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul actually does something interesting here, which is he takes the, the traditional Greek greeting, which was the Greek word karain, which, which literally just means greetings, and he makes it more interesting. He changes it to charos, which is the word for grace, which is a much more exciting word than just greetings. And then he takes the traditional Hebrew Jewish greeting, which is shalom, which is peace, and he brings them together. Paul is always bridging the, the world of the Jewish world of the Hebrews and the world of the Greeks. And so he brings the two together, grace and peace. Um, but in a way, these two words together um, express the very heart 
of the gospel. Um, And I think for us, these words can act as a kind of health check that help us stay centered on Jesus and his gospel. Whenever we're in danger of drifting off course, we come back to grace and we come back to peace. Whenever we forget grace, we can drift off into a human-centered gospel about what we can do to fix the world and fix ourselves rather than trusting God to do what we can't do. It's by grace that we're saved through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. Um, And of course, we're going to find out as we read on in Philippians, there is good work for us to do. Paul's going to say later in Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So there's, there's good work for us to do. But we we got to make sure we put it in the right place. When we put our work first, we get into serious trouble. And so we begin always, every day, with grace. Uh, When we forget grace, we drift into a human-centered gospel. When we forget peace, um, we drift into a small gospel. Um, And this connects with what Wallace was talking about earlier on. It's very easy for us to... um, to end up with a a much smaller gospel than the New Testament preaches that is just about getting my sins forgiven and going to heaven when I die. And that is part of the gospel. But the New Testament gospel is much bigger. And and in, in a strange way, although peace is a very small word, it's a little word that makes sure we keep the gospel big. Because whenever we hear that hear that word peace, and behind it, the Hebrew word shalom, it, it points us to a large, expansive gospel, a life-changing gospel. In fact, a world-changing gospel. Um, because if the engine of the gospel is grace, then the goal of the gospel is peace, shalom, wholeness, fullness of life. And that includes getting your sins forgiven, and it includes peace between you and God, but it also includes peace of mind and peace of heart, and it also includes God making you whole and making you well in every part of your character and every part of your life. Um, You can't just get your sins forgiven and then remain unchanged. This peace reaches every part of your, your life, and it also includes God making peace between you and other people between you and your brother, between you and your sister, between you and your neighbor, between you and your enemy, and breaking down barriers and making a new community of peace. And it even includes, and this is where our minds get blown, God reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself, as Daniel read to us earlier on from Colossians, and making peace for the whole creation, for the whole cosmos, Or as it says in Revelation, Jesus making all things new. So that little word peace contains within it all of that life-changing, world-changing gospel. The engine of the gospel is grace. The goal of the gospel is nothing less than God making peace um, in all these ways uh, that we've just talked about. Um, And maybe where I want to finish is with um, a little bit of a challenge um, for all of us uh, this morning. Um, I want to go back actually to the word grace, especially. Um, Because I think, and you can tell me later if you agree, I think for most of us, um, 
the danger here is not so much that we drift in our theology or in our preaching or in our doctrine. We can have the right doctrine sometimes, but we can drift in our lives. Um, I'm guessing if I was to do a little questionnaire this morning and asked you all, um, are we saved by good works or are we saved by grace? Most of us would tick the right box. We've kind of had that well drilled into us. We know it's by grace, right? We have that clear. But sometimes our lives tell a different story. We live like it all depends on me, right? Like I must do everything to sort everything out. I, I got to sort myself out. I've got to sort out other people. I've got to sort out the church. I've got to sort out the world. And it's all down to me. And then maybe we ask God to sprinkle our efforts with a little bit of grace, with a little blessing. But it's really up to us to save the world. When in reality, all is grace from start to finish. Life itself is a gift. Existence is a gift. Creation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. We wake every day into a world we didn't make, right? We're born into a world we didn't make. Everything is grace from start to finish, but we forget very easily. Um, and so maybe as a, a little exercise to finish, um, here's a little health check uh, for you, and you can think about this during the week. Um, what happens whenever we live by grace and by contrast, what happens whenever we live by self-effort, as if it all depends on us? And I, these are some of the things that I think happen. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about them uh, at all. I'm just going to put them up on the screen. When we live by grace, it leads to humility. Because it's all about God, it's not about us. When we live by self-effort, it leads to all kinds of pride. Uh, that it, I'm the one who's going to save the world. When we live by grace... It leads to a kind of lightness in our spirits because it's not on my shoulders. When we live by self-effort, there's a heaviness that comes in. When we live by grace, there's peace that guards our hearts and our minds. When we live by self-effort, we become terribly anxious. Um, when we live by grace, there's generosity because we're aware of the generosity of God. Uh, that never runs out, the abundance of God's generosity. But when we're running out of our resources, we become very miserly and selfish. When we live by grace, there's a great sense of adventure in life, living by the Spirit. What's God going to do next in our lives? When we live by self-effort, there's a timidity. We become very cautious, tiptoeing through our lives. When we live by grace, we live gently because we don't need to push anybody around. When we live by self-effort, we become very aggressive because we've got to make it happen. Um, when we live by grace, there's patience, waiting on the Lord, waiting to see what God's going to do. When we live by self-effort, we're in a terrible hurry and we become angry when things don't happen quickly the way we want. When we live by grace, we will be kind to other flawed, sinful people like ourselves. We will show grace to other people. But when we're living by self-effort, we become very critical of everyone around us. When we live by grace, we're always growing. We're not the finished article, but we're always being made new, being made whole, being made well. 
When we live by self-effort, we get stuck in our brokenness. Uh, we stagnate. We act out of our woundedness. We're not being healed in any direction. When we live by grace, we become a peacemaker, doing the holy, difficult work of making peace. When we live by self-effort, we become divisive. When we live by grace, we become hopeful people. When we live by self-effort, we become cynical. And finally, when we live by grace, we become joyful, thankful people. Um, when we live by self-effort, we become whinging, whining, grumbling, complaining people. Um, and I want to just offer that to you as a little health check. Maybe you can take it into the week. Some of you are taking a photo. You can look it up on, the, on YouTube later as well. Um, we'll send it out with the Monday email. Um, and just do a little health check. Um, ask God to search your life, search your heart. Um, we can't witness in the world to the gospel of grace and peace if our lives communicate a different message. If our lives are not full of the grace of Jesus and the peace that God makes in our lives and in the world. Um, and by the way, if you do the health check and you find that things are not healthy, um, don't just go around feeling bad this week. Um, and don't just try harder. <laughs> um, come to Jesus, your King. Come to God, your Father, and say, I need a whole lot more grace. <laughs> um, I need you to come in these areas and make peace in my life because I can't do it by myself. Right? And maybe this morning, if you're aware of some of that in your life, maybe you want to come and ask someone to pray with you or ask someone near you uh, to pray with you. Let's uh, pray together as we finish. I was going to talk a little bit more about joy, but we'll talk about that next week. Um, let's pray together, and then we're going to sing a song uh, just as our last thing together. Father, I want to thank you so much that in Jesus, our King, the grace of God has appeared in our world. The kindness of God has appeared. And Father, we want to confess together this morning that that is our only hope in life and in death and in eternity. Our hope is in your grace, which is freely and gladly given and freely and gladly received. Father, forgive us when we confess that gospel with our words, but then go and live a different way. We want to pray, would you pour your grace into our hearts? Would you pour your grace into our lives so that the fruit of your spirit starts to appear in our lives, so that our lives start to resemble the character of Jesus, so that people can look at our lives and see the gospel of grace and the gospel of peace written there even before we say a word. Father, that can only come about by, your, by a miracle of your grace, by a miracle of your spirit. So would you pour your spirit out on us again in a fresh way today and this week? Would you make us people uh, whose lives proclaim good news of great joy? And we pray in the name of Jesus, our King.